Well, good morning, everyone. It's good that we can continue to at least meet online here. And as we are going through the Word of God today, I would invite and ask you to please uh, open your Bibles. We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount today. And it's an interesting part here because we are opening a new section on the Sermon of the Mount. We are done the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, which talks about characteristics of people who are in the kingdom. It gives pictures of what they look like. And at this point, people could wonder, well then, how do they actually be saved? How do they live? What does that look like? And as we go into this next section of the Sermon on the Mount, this is going to be an important section that will give a key to interpret the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So we shouldn't miss this, otherwise we could go and look at the moral commands later on and not see what they're really getting to. So, in particular, the passage we're going to be looking at today, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, is one that Jesus brings up in regards to the Old Testament. He mentions the law and prophets. And there is a lot of confusion today about how to understand the Old Testament, especially as Christians today. How do we look at this? How do we apply it? Which laws do we live out? Which, how do we do that? Obviously, uh, we don't do animal sacrifices today. There are differences of, of application based on the first century. So sometimes people come up with these sim simple formulas to try to uh, explain how to live out the Old Testament. Uh, I, I've heard one example that some people say is, well, um, the Old Testament, the easy way to look at it is you just follow whatever the New Testament repeats. If it's repeated in the New Testament, then it must be good to go. And that sounds good, but there are problems with that, as the New Testament does not repeat everything that the Old Testament says, and some of them are important things that we affirm as important laws today. For example, uh, incest. That is in the Old Testament. It's not as much in the New Testament. Uh, laws regarding kidnapping, bribery, the practice of mediums, uh, injustices of scales and weights, those are not as explicitly repeated in the New Testament. So we can't just use a rule that if it's repeated in the New Testament, then we follow it. Uh, others will say, and kind of give a, a summary, that we just follow a law of love. Um, that, that's the, the key we look at with the Old Testament, and we don't have to look at specifics, but we just walk in love. And they get that from when Jesus himself says, on these two commandments, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. But the key, of course, with that verse is that the word depend is there. And depend means we still need specific laws. When he says that, he's not saying to ignore what's in the Old Testament, but he's saying that there is a heart behind it. And likewise, of course, in Matthew 28, the last part of this gospel we're going through, Jesus actually gives commandments to know as part of discipleship, to teach them all that Jesus has taught. So simplistic approaches to the Old Testament don't work, and they can cause confusion when we should be approaching our Bibles with confident, joyful obedience as people of the kingdom, as people who have been described as in the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus did not just come to give us a simple five-word formula so that we could discard the Old Testament and move along, but he fulfilled the law himself and showed us how that is done. So as we look at this text today, I'm going to read it here and then we'll pray. And I invite you all in your homes today to, to read along with me here. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And let's read this now. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray, and then I'll go from there. Father God, thank you for the text you've given us today. I just pray across our homes and wherever people are watching this around the world, around the lower mainland, as we are in our living rooms or different places, as we're worshiping you and seeking you, that you would just speak to us now through this text, that you would speak to us through what your scriptures say, and that you would help us to have clarity and, and precision in how we look at your scriptures so that we would not come to the Bible with confusion, but come to it with joyful obedience, knowing the salvation you accomplished for us and knowing that we can walk in joyful obedience and not just confusion and bewilderment. So I pray you would continue now as we go through the Sermon on the Mount to speak to my heart, speak to all of our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first part of this passage is verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And from there we need to ask, okay, he doesn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, so what are the law and the prophets then? And to give the answer, the law and the prophets is essentially just a name given for the Old Testament in that day. Uh, sometimes you would call it the law, prophets, writings. Oftentimes it would just be the law or the prophets. But essentially what Jesus is saying here is he has not come to abolish the Old Testament. Now, of course, in the first century they didn't call it the Old Testament as that is what they had. And the term Old Testament came uh, later on. Uh, Daniel Block, an Old Testament scholar, actually argues that the word Old Testament can be unhelpful to use in some cases because of some of the connotations people get with the word old. Uh, he actually prefers to call this the First Testament and then the New Testament as the Second Testament. And the reason, because some people, when they hear old, they just think, well, I don't need to follow that then if that's the old thing. Right? If you have bread that is old and moldy and you have new bread that is fresh and good, what do you do with the old? You, you get rid of it and put it, hopefully, in some organic somewhere or something, and uh, you move on to your new stuff. Um, but that's not the case with the Bible. The Old Testament is not to be simply discarded. And, and we should see that it was never called this in the New Testament itself, and this came later on. Um, there's nothing necessarily wrong with calling it the Old Testament as long as we understand the heart behind what we're saying, that there are two parts, but they are equally important to read. So from here, we should look at what Jesus does right after this passage. Over and over again, after this passage, Jesus is refuting teachings regarding the Old Testament and traditions that have come up. He's going to talk about anger, murder, uh, lust and adultery, divorce, marriage, oaths. And with each one, he's going to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have heard that it was said, but I say. So you can imagine some people hearing this would think, oh, so Jesus has come to get rid of the Old Testament because he's quoting from it and he's reteaching it. So that must be what's going on. But right before Jesus is going to get to that, it's so important on his mind that people do not think he has come to remove the Old Testament. 
from here, we should see in verse 17, Jesus says what he has not come to do. He has not come to abolish it. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word abolish is a very strong word in this passage, and it, it could also be translated as to throw down or to destroy. So Jesus is saying he has not come to do that with the law and the prophets. And this is important to know because there were people who tried to do this. In the second century in church history, there was a guy called Marcion, and his goal with the Bible is that he tried to remove anything that was Jewish from it. He went through and removed Old Testament and removed much of the New Testament. And the passage we're looking at today, he removed as well. And his followers, after Marcion passed, they actually went even further, as is often the case with followers of disciples. They have a uh, quotation, I have a quotation here that talks about it. It says, they dared to reverse its meaning of this passage by exchanging the verbs so that the sentence then read, I have come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. They reversed it to say Jesus had come to abolish it. But we should see this passage is saying nothing like this. Uh, verse 18, he continues Jesus in the same light. In case somehow you missed what verse 17 was saying. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus' language there is very strong. He says, For truly I say to you. Now, in the Old Testament, prophets would often say, um, Thus says the Lord God. And even in the New Testament, the apostles often will say something like, it is written. Um, but here Jesus actually says, truly I say to you. His authority is on display here. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are astonished as he is declaring authority. And his authority here is in himself. For truly I say to you. So this, this language here is important. And then he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota dot will pass from the law. So we can think, he is saying here, until the very ends of entire existence, this law will not pass, not even the smallest letter. You know, that's a long wait. If you're going to wait to the end of time and matter itself, that's, of course, a picture you can't even imagine in your mind. So that, that's the second way Jesus is saying, don't discard the law and prophets. It's not abolished. From there, Jesus gives another promise. Verse 19, he continues. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's another warning there. It's a promise. If you think lightly and you think you can just abolish the Old Testament and teach their commandments can just be ignored, your promise is you're going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that is not a prize I want to achieve in heaven. That when I get to heaven, that I am crowned with a special prize. You are at the very bottom rings of heaven because you taught people to abolish the law and prophets. That's not, not a great achievement or ranking to have, not a, a badge that I, I want to be wearing. So obviously, this is a pretty serious thing. And this really does matter in terms of how we live, because there are teachings out there that are known as being anti-law teachings. Uh, a word that has been uh, used for this is called antinomianism, and that is to be anti-law, to be anti-living out 
righteousness. Um, a, a pastor about 40, 50 years ago, John Gerstner, he uh, paraphrased and requoted a hymn to kind of try to describe what antinomianism teaches. And, and he said, free from the law, oh blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. And, and that's, that's the issue with antinomianism. It's the idea that we can receive this grace from God, but it won't change us at all, and we'll just live however we want, and we won't even follow a thing that God says. Uh, another pastor, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in 1930s, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he coined this term called cheap grace. And uh, he was at a time when a lot of the German churches were compromising with the Nazi government, and there were a lot of compromises going on with the living out of the faith. And he had this to say, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And he's getting again to this point, similar to how Jesus is getting, that yes, we have an amazing good news in the Christian faith and we have an identity that is amazing. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we see the Beatitudes, the blessings are overwhelming that are ours to be in the kingdom. But it doesn't come at the cost of removing the law and the prophets, of the living out of the law. And of course, Jesus will spend the Sermon on the Mount continuing to explain specifics of it regarding things of oath-keeping and adultery and murder. But we shouldn't at the start think that he's come to give us a five-word formula to just ignore whatever the Old Testament says here. So another thing to think of is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a word for false prophets. And he gives a word for false teachers. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, he calls them workers of lawlessness. Workers of lawlessness. That is not something that we would want to be called as well. So we should be very careful to discard things of the Old Testament. Instead, we need to look at the language that Jesus uses in terms of fulfillment. And that leads us to point one in my outline today. Point one is that Jesus emphatically taught a full continuation of the Old Testament and did not come to remove it or to remove the need for Christians to live in light of it. He did not come to remove it or to remove the need for Christians to live in light of it. So at this point then, we have the negative, that he has not come to abolish it. But there is language here of fulfillment then. So what is the positive teaching that Jesus is giving in this passage as we are in this new section on the Sermon on the Mount? The language is fulfill. If we go back to verse 17, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we have to ask, okay, fulfill what does fulfill mean? As that is a key word in this passage here. Um, if we think about this, a lot of people will say, well, the fulfill language is like Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, where Jesus says, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When people are asking about the baptism, why is Jesus being baptized if he didn't sin? It's fulfilling. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Jesus, of course, never sinned. He always did write and taught truly and practiced this all of the years of his life. And while this is true, that Jesus fulfilled the law himself, as he never sinned and he was perfect and fulfilled all righteousness, there's even more to this passage than the fact that Jesus himself fulfilled the law by practicing it. We have to think because the very next sections on the Sermon on the Mount are how to live it out for individuals. As I said, with oath-keeping and anger in your heart and lust and adultery. So there is application here for not just Jesus, but for others as well. So fulfill goes beyond just the fact that Jesus himself fulfills it. The greater point here is that the word fulfill actually means that Jesus has come to bring about the full meaning and practice of the Old Testament. The full meaning and practice of the Old Testament. That he has actually come to give us not just new information, but fulfilled information to fill what the Old Testament says. John Stott uh, was a pastor in England, and he wrote about this passage. And he had an insightful quote regarding the language of fulfill. He said, uh, Jesus here rejects the superficial interpretation of the law given by the scribes, and he himself supplies the true interpretation. Uh, and listen to this part. It's very important. He says, his purpose is not to change the law, still less to annul it, but to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. But to reveal the full depth of meaning that it was intended to hold. So Jesus has not come to abolish the law, but to say this is actually what it's been about all along and now in this new covenant, this new heart, which we're going to get to, there's a new way to look at this. And we know that the Old Testament itself had this in mind. We know the Old Testament had in mind that there was more information coming, that there was a Messiah coming, that the old information itself would have a key in the future to look at. And uh, a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is helpful in this regard because Moses himself in Deuteronomy 18 said to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And then Moses says, it is to him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. So in the Old Testament, there was an idea that, yes, there are laws here and there are commands and there are many things going on. But even then, there is still someone else coming and you're going to need to listen to him. And why would they need to listen to him? If he was just giving the exact same information they already had, there wouldn't be much point listening. But there's something new coming and it's going to be a fulfillment. And that's why they would need to listen to it then because something new and important was coming and that was going to be in the person of Jesus. So as we look at this today, then, I'm sure a lot of questions could come up. Obviously, we're not sacrificing animals today in this building. We don't practice uh, explicitly what a lot of the Old Testament laws explicitly say. So how do we think through the Old Testament, then, if Jesus says he has not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it? And the, the key here is we have to look at the heart behind all these passages, and that is also what Jesus is going to get to in the next passages. As he looks at adultery, what is the heart issue going on here? As he looks at murder, what's the anger heart issue going on? And in the same way, as we look at these Old Testament laws, like animal sacrifices, for example, how do we practice that? Well, we can actually say as Christians, we do not just ignore the animal sacrifice passages. These are still helpful for us to read. Why? 
because we know that these sacrifices of animals were never good enough to pay for the sins of the people for all time. That's why they had to keep doing it over and over and over, year after year, day after day. And even the book of Hebrews points this out. So how do we practice the animal sacrifices today then? By trusting in the perfect sacrifice of the Son of God, of Jesus Christ. By trusting that his payment for our sins on the cross did work. If we believe in that, we can still say that we are practicing the heart principle behind the Old Testament law of animal sacrifice. One commentator says, the principle of penalty and payment for sin remains valid and needs to be taught and understood as God's will. And we do that through the cross. So it's not that we have just abolished or removed the Old Testament, but that there is an amazing fulfillment in Jesus that the heart of this law was always pointing towards and getting to. And now we can see the fulfillment in Jesus. Likewise, another way that Jesus fulfills the law and prophets is through the prophecies, that there were predictions given and events that were coming that Jesus fulfills. Uh, in Zechariah chapter 11, there is a passage that, the, uh, that there would be this person sold for 30 silver coins. And, and that's exactly the, the price that Jesus himself was sold for. And, and if you can imagine, that is not something that you can set up on your own. <laughs> that you would be betrayed by one of your closest disciples for this amount of money. Uh, likewise, in Isaiah 53, we get the passage of the suffering servant. And the beautiful language that is given there that, that points to the sacrifice of the servant. And Jesus, again, fulfills that language. It's amazing to think that if you go to many people on the street and were to read something like Isaiah 53, that even people who are not Christians oftentimes will understand who this is talking about, even written hundreds of years before Christ came. Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, fulfilled in Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. That was fulfilled by Jesus. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, a true peace, an everlasting peace, fulfilled by Jesus. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that is a precious promise from the law and the prophets. Not abolished by Jesus, but fulfilled by Jesus given to us as a gift from Jesus. So from there, we should think, okay, Jesus has not come to abolish the law. He has come to fulfill it. But isn't there still a problem? Because in the Old Testament, the people could not obey the laws of God. They constantly went astray. And then, even in the times of Nehemiah and Ezra, where they thought, okay, we will just hunker down and follow the law as much as possible, so that we don't get conquered again by foreign nations, what we'll do is we'll create rules upon rules upon rules and have multiple layers and count all 600 and something of them. And, and of course, we have the tradition of the Pharisees and scribes to do this. But then they threw away the heart of the law. They got rid of the heart of the law in doing that. So Jesus, in his fulfillment of the law, actually gave us another thing, which is amazing. Jesus achieves even more the fulfillment of the law because he also gives that changed heart to then practice it, to then live it out, to then actually be a Christ follower. And that, again, goes back to the cross. By being the slain lamb who died on the cross, 
He fulfills the picture of the Old Testament, the Passover. He becomes the ultimate Passover lamb for us, just as the book of Exodus was this ultimate picture of salvation for the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Now we have the ultimate coming out of sin and evil in our own hearts from Jesus and what he did on the cross. And we have language in the Old Testament that points to this. In the book of Jeremiah, it talks about the new covenant. And it says, in the new covenant, there would still be the law. But this is what the difference is. It says the law would be written on our hearts. The law would be written on our hearts. We wouldn't be looking for superficial, external ways to follow the law regarding, who knows, elevators on the Sabbath and not pushing buttons or things like that. But the heart of the law itself, the heart of the law itself, what Jesus then does, of course, is he brings what we call the new birth. He brings a change of heart when he dies on the cross for all who would believe in him. He brings a way to approach the law, not as some way that we must manipulate God to be saved, but then to change our hearts so that the law is now the way of life for those who are saved, not to be saved, but the response of glad servants of Jesus who have been changed by him for all eternity, who have believed on his salvation once for all, that there is no more sacrifice needed for sin. My sacrifice is in Jesus. I have been found by him, and my salvation's in him, and now I can walk in fulfillment of the law by the strength of him. That changes things. Likewise, the book of Ezekiel gives us another picture of that. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. It gives us this amazing picture of the new heart that was coming, that the Old Testament saw all along. Ezekiel 36 says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is an amazing picture of what the new birth, the new heart that Jesus was coming to give people would look like. And it's in the Old Testament itself. And, and please note that as it says here, the heart of stones being removed, that, that legalistic heart that the Pharisees and scribes were doing where they couldn't actually fulfill the law and they were just adding these rules that they were removing the meaning of the texts. Here, as we look at Ezekiel 36, what is the result of getting a heart of flesh? It says here in verse 26, to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. There's such a difference between just fulfilling rules so you can say you've done it, you got the checklist, whatever, and actually saying, I want to follow the rules. I'll be careful to obey these rules. That I'm actually going to walk carefully that requires a heart change and cannot be done all on our own strength. And that does not sound like a superficial interpretation of the Old Testament where someone might just say, ah, don't worry about what it says. You know, just walk in love and you're all good. This is much more significant than that. So we should note here in Jesus' fulfillment of the law that yes, there is a change of heart and it comes through Jesus. That's why the Sermon on the Mount starts with all these blessings. And even right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, we are told that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He is bringing good news. And with that good news, there is a new way of living as well. And it's not a break from the Old Testament, but a fulfillment of it. So point two 
today is that Jesus' fulfillment of the law means he brings about the deeper meaning of the law while also providing the means to then live it out in the new birth. You know, as we think about this and what it means to then continue with the Old Testament and to continue in obeying these laws, uh, I was trying to wrestle through what is a picture. And of course, all analogies are imperfect by nature. We give pictures to point to things. But I was thinking one picture I thought of in my mind was just the idea of engagement and being in a relationship with someone, an engagement that goes to marriage. When you are engaged to somebody, there is a level of commitment there. You are preparing for the marriage, but you're also preparing for life with that person as it's supposed to be till death do you part. You're preparing, you're making commitments. When you're engaged, you're not dating other people. Uh, when you're engaged, you are loving and caring for the other person. And when the marriage comes, the engagement is done. That's fulfilled, and now you're on to the next stage. But it's not as if everything you did in the engagement is just out the window. It's not as if as soon as you finish your vows on the marriage altar, you say, okay, bye, <laughs> I'll see you later, I don't know. But you actually continue the same obligations. Just as you do not date other people in engagement, you don't go and commit adultery in marriage. You're, not, you're told not to do that. The, the same things, some of the principles of engagement carry over. And obviously this is not a perfect analogy, but in the same way, the law of the Old Testament gets fulfillment in Jesus, and then it's not removed but it's fulfilled, and then we still live in light of it. We still live looking at the hearts behind the laws, and we should think about how then that looks. So the last verse in this passage is verse 20, and it's very important as well as Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here is really one of the first direct passages about entrance into the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. For people who have been listening to Jesus and thinking about this, here it is, and it's saying your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, in our day, we can think, okay, well, that's pretty simple. The scribes and the Pharisees, you know, didn't really have a heart behind what they were doing. But you've got to think, in the first century Jewish world here, the scribes and Pharisees were full-time law followers. They wanted to make sure that they did not break laws, and they made hedges and walls and boundaries around the law to not even go close to breaking laws. They would have been like full-time people following the law in every possible way, even if it was externally and not in the heart. And the people seeing them would think, wow, those people know how to follow the law. And this would have been one of the most shocking statements people could hear in Jesus' day, that if you want to go to heaven... You actually need to exceed the righteousness of those people who work full-time as their jobs to fulfill the law. Yeah, yeah, you have your carpentry business. You do that work over there. But your righteousness needs to exceed those who are doing 70, 90 hours a week on the law. Yeah, even though you've got to keep your other thing going. The people who heard this would have been absolutely shocked. I, I was thinking of uh, what would be perhaps an analogy for today. Uh, another imperfect analogy. Um, maybe today it might sound something as crazy as saying, if you want to go to heaven, you need to donate more money than Bill Gates to charity. And you need to do it while maintaining your standards of living and everything. Uh, if people heard that today, they think, that's crazy. No one could ever do that. And it might have sounded similar in the day 
of the first century, when the Jew would hear Jesus say that, that your righteousness needs to exceed, not just match it, not be coming close to it, but actually be superior to the scribes and Pharisees, or else you won't enter the kingdom of heaven? How can we possibly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, as I've already inferred, their fault was that they had an external way of looking at the law, that they weren't looking at the heart of the law, but how to make sure they could just not go near breaking it externally. And if we recall other passages in the New Testament, Jesus talks about their hearts. He says that the Pharisees were like dead man's tombs, that they looked great on the outside, but on the inside were not healthy at all. So the righteousness that Jesus wants, that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, is a righteousness that comes from a changed heart on the inside, and not just an external action shielding the fact that you don't actually care about God's law at all. The righteousness that Jesus wants is from a changed heart on the inside. If we think about it, the word legalism, when people say, don't be legalistic, the actual word legalism, which I think is a very misused word in our day, Sometimes people just bring it up if you bring up a standard of morality. Don't be legalistic. But the actual word behind legalism is really getting to disconnecting the law from God and living out the law without living for God, without having a heart for God. And that is what the fault is of the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was going to continually counteract and go against. And there would be this continual conflict in the Gospels. So, Christian righteousness is different then. John Stott, uh, again, pastor, has this quote to say about Christian righteousness. He said, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. It is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. So the huge difference here is that we are going for a righteousness that is not about number of laws followed and statistical analysis in that sense, but the heart of the law, the depth of actually following the law. And if you can actually follow with a heart changed by Jesus, you will have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You won't just be looking to check off one out of 600 and whatever, but you'll actually be looking to say, what is the heart? How can I make sure that I'm living for God in every way? Because I desire to do that, not just so I can look good to other people. Ultimately, at the start, this really should seem impossible for everyone. Because without a heart change, we can't live this way. We can't do this on our own. We, of course, are born in sin. And by nature, none of us have a desire to follow God's law. It doesn't come automatically to anyone. We can raise our kids in our households to know God, but they also all need a heart change to follow God's law. We naturally desire easy ways out and excuses. I mean, it's very popular to come up with simplistic ways of just discarding the Old Testament, even in our day-to-day, -day, as I've already mentioned. It's easy to try to find ways to not have to care as much about living the Christian life out. And it's easy to come up with those phrases. You know, just follow the law of love. Just follow this. Uh, there we go. We have our law. And I'm sure that we can all relate to this. 
But the good news is that Jesus actually brings heart change so we can be more righteous than the Pharisees. The solution's not to say, the Pharisees had 600 rules, I'll have 1,200 rules, and then I'll be more righteous. That's not the solution. The solution is to go to Jesus for our righteousness, to go to Jesus for the righteousness that he gave us on the cross. When he died on the cross, he paid for the sins of any who would believe in him. And that payment being secured means that we as God's children can live in light of being saved. We can live in light of the new birth. We don't have to live this heartless law out, but we can be heart-filled, fleshy people who actually have been changed by God and want to follow what God says, not to be saved, but because we are saved, because we want to live in light of God changing us. If you had a trillion-dollar debt that was coming against you, and somebody gave you a payment, you would be overwhelmed by that. And that has happened much more so in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Because there is no amount of money you could have ever given to obtain salvation for any of your sins. Only Jesus could pay for that. And that is why we should be overwhelmed by the gift he's given us and seek that gift and seek the changed heart that comes from following Jesus then. Because we will have overwhelming strength when we see the overwhelming love that God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So instead of Jesus coming so that we could obey the law less, we need to see that Jesus came so we could actually obey it more, more truly, and more fulfilled, and more to the actual heart of why it was written in the first place. So are you struggling with this today? I want to ask that. When you read the Bible, when you see what Jesus is giving, when you look ahead at the Sermon on the Mount and you see about lust and adultery, and you think, wow, even just looking at a person with lust counts as adultery. When you see those laws, does it only fill you with dread and saying, I can't do that? Do you feel like it's impossible to live any of this out? Do you feel like it would be easier to be like a scribe and Pharisee, to write out lists of rules and not care and just to just do it so you can say you did it? then you need to know that you need to come to Jesus first. You need to come to Jesus in repentance, turning from your sin, coming to Jesus in faith, trusting in him. Turning to Jesus will not lead you away from God's laws and rules. They will give you relief through the salvation Jesus gives and then the changed heart and power to live that law out. Not leading you away from the law, but leading you forward in power with life and strength that cannot come from your own heart on your own strength. In conclusion, I just wanted to think three things again that this passage really brings to us and to our attention to think through. First, we should treat the Old Testament with great care. Jesus himself said that not an jot or tittle, not an iota, the smallest Greek letter, and the smallest Hebrew letters, scholars will talk about, would be removed. Jesus said not even the smallest stroke or dot would be removed from the Old Testament. He's not come to do that. Not an iota, not a dot, verse 18, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the first thing is we, just, we need to remember the Old Testament is very authoritative. It has tremendous authority over us today. Jesus himself believed in the full, inspired authority of Scripture. That for him, there was not a word, there was not a phrase, there was not a dot in the Old Testament that was out of place that should be removed. He believed in this authority of Scripture to say that every stroke 
counted means he believed that. And we should today too. If we are changed by the Lord Jesus, we should follow the authority he points to. The second thing to continue to think of is, yes, Jesus does call us to a high moral standard as Christians, not to an easy excuse way out or just simple t-shirt catchphrases. We don't have to think about how to live out the Christian life. Throughout the Christian life, we are going to have struggles when we find that we're not doing what the Bible says. And that's a good thing to have to struggle through because by default, no one is going to automatically be walking exactly as the scripture says. Throughout life, we will continue to find things we need to amend and change. And the third thing, of course, is that all of this comes from a heart change. That the Sermon on the Mount is not a sermon about legalistic rule following so that you could know God. The Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom view of how to live in light of Jesus, how to live in light of the gospel of the kingdom. And we should never practice, separate our morality, our living righteously with the fact that we trust in Jesus as our bedrock foundation of faith who gives us salvation and gives us the strength then by which to live out the law. From there, let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much that you provide us a way to understand the Old Testament in light of our Savior Jesus, that there is clarity even as we see that the law and the prophets are not abolished, but they are fulfilled, that there is understanding as we are called to follow our Savior Jesus, that as he gave us his perfect sacrifice and salvation, that he also can give us that strength to live it out, not begrudgingly, not thinking this is such a pain, but with a new birth, with a new heart, with a changed life that actually desires it because of the overwhelming love that has been given to us through Jesus. I pray that as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount these next weeks, that you would give us a joy as we see the laws, that you would help us see in an excited way that it's amazing to get behind the heart of these laws and how they actually work and to see how Jesus fulfills them and gives us the truer and deeper meaning. And may our lives change in joyful obedience as we look at that then. May you be the strength that we look to in that. In Jesus' name, amen.